Hello there, my name is Kathleen, and this is The Osborne Tapes, the re-release of the Analyst Corner podcast with Debbie Osborne. Today's episode is about information sharing and features Paul Wormelli. Paul is an innovator and entrepreneur who has focused his career on the application of information technology to public safety, law enforcement, criminal justice, and homeland security. Paul has been an advisor to the White House on security and privacy, participated in the drafting of a federal law on this topic, and was responsible for the development of numerous state plans to implement the federal and state laws on information system security and privacy. In this episode, Paul and Debbie discuss information sharing, specifically the National Information Exchange Model, or NIEM. This framework enables the effective and efficient sharing of critical data, as currently demonstrated in the justice, public safety, emergency, disaster management, intelligence, and homeland security sectors. So a big change from when this episode was originally aired, this past October, NIEM transitioned from the U.S. Department of Defense to OASIS, a nonprofit open source and open standard organization. In a news article that's linked in the notes for this episode, they talked about this transition and how it allows NIEM to become more readily available to international communities and organizations, and how this change highlights the partnership of the private sector and government agencies. Linked in the show notes are resources regarding information sharing and the NIEM Open Project at Oasis. There's also links to webinars that may be helpful to analysts on preserving the integrity of digital evidence and the impact of video evidence on the criminal justice system. Now, without further ado, let's get into today's episode with Paul Wormelli. Welcome to Analyst's Corner, a show dedicated to the development of crime and intelligence analysis and policing. Today's primary topic is information sharing via the National Information Exchange Model, a federal, state, local, and tribal interagency initiative providing a foundation for seamless information exchange. Our guest is Paul Wormelli. Mr. Wormelli is the Executive Director of the Integrated Justice Information Systems Institute and has over 40 years of experience in law enforcement and criminal justice technology. Hello, Paul. It's truly my honor to welcome you to this show. Thank you, Deborah. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, Before we begin to discuss IJIS um, and information sharing, I'd like our, our listeners, many who are involved in the field of crime and intelligence analysis, to know more about your role in the history of the early stages of the crime analysis profession. Um, for listeners, just a little story. I met Paul on a flight from, I believe, from Denver to Washington, D.C. in 2003, just before my book, Introduction to Crime Analysis, was coming out. He was sitting two seats away from me in the same row, and I handed um, a pre-publication flyer to the gentleman I was chatting with next to me. A few minutes later, Paul said that he had written a book on crime analysis in the 1970s. And later I discovered, in further discussions with him, that he had played a key role in administering the grant, the funding that um, started the first crime analysis units in our country. Paul, can you remember that um, meeting? And and can you tell our listeners a little bit about those early days in crime analysis in the United States? Sure. That was a a real treat to meet you on that airplane and uh, (laughs) uh, quite an experience to find another person who'd been writing about crime analysis. and uh, what It wasn't actually a, a real book that we put together. I led the project to build what the National Institute of Justice called a 
proscriptive package for crime analysis. It was one of the first attempts to define <clears throat> what crime analysis was all about and how to build a crime analysis unit. And it was in the early 70s, and uh, there weren't very many crime analysis units in operation at the time. No, so, go ahead. It was an attempt to try to spread the word throughout the country. And our listeners might not, some of our listeners are not in law enforcement. They might not understand that crime analysis really took off after the invention of the PC, the personal computer, so that people could use data, analyze um, more quantities of data, and figure out relationships between crimes and, and criminals in um, a more efficient manner through data analysis. Um, so what is IJIS, and and um, what and, and what is seamless information exchange? Well, the the IGES Institute is a, a consortium of the companies who are active in this field, uh, who came together at the request of the Justice Department to get industry engaged in helping solve the problems of information sharing. You know, and just to give you a little bit of background, in uh, for decades in this country, we've built computer systems that don't talk to each other. And starting about 10 years ago, the Justice Department realized that it was time to change that. And fortunately, there was some new technology being developed at the time that helped improve our ability to get computers from different agencies to talk. Just for, in the very general sense, uh, Police collect data on people they arrest and on crimes that occur. They need to share that information with the prosecutor and with the courts. And the way that's always been done is on paper. Uh, we also know that in a lot of police information systems, and uh, there are little pockets of data and information within a police department that aren't brought together so that the crime analyst can do something useful to, to find those patterns that you were talking about, Deb. Uh, so the IGES Institute was formed uh, as a nonprofit, 5013C, to uh, sort of harness the intellectual power of the hundreds of thousands of people in the information technology industry to try to solve some of these problems. And we've... Uh, mostly been involved at the request of the Department of Justice in education and training and technical assistance to state and local governments. But we've also participated in, in writing standards and helping build the, initially the Global Justice XML data model, which became the National Information Exchange model that you referred to. So um, how are things progressing from yeah, you know, how long have you been working on this type of um, the goal to improve data sharing and data exchange through information technology? And we're, what progress is, is going on? And because I know, from my point of view, we still have a long way to go. So I'm wondering what you see, where you were, where things are from when you began, and where they are now, and where you see them heading. Well, I. <clears throat> Uh, we do have a long way to go, but we have come a, a very far away. I, I've actually been at this since uh, I was the director of Project Search in the early 70s, and uh, we've, we've tried to 
to do a lot of things, but we have accomplished a lot. You know, back in even that long ago, uh, what what Search did was help create a, a national system for exchanging information on criminal histories, which didn't exist before then. And uh, a lot of agencies throughout the country have recognized that they need to do a better job of sharing information, but. Uh, about 10 years ago, and a whole new technology was invented by the computer geeks called uh, XML, Extensible Markup Language. And all that is is a, a way to represent data so that it makes it easy for computers to talk to each other. And, and that was a, kind of a breakthrough in this whole industry so that people began to realize they could use that language to represent reports that police needed to share with the prosecutor, for example, or with each other. And of course, the tragedies of September 11th gave a big impetus to better information sharing as uh, the um, various federal agencies realized they needed to share more data with state and local law enforcement and, and uh, find ways to inf inform the general public as well as police and fire and EMS agencies about potential problems, disasters, or uh, terrorist acts, or even major crimes. And that uh, focus has resulted in what, what I think is one of the major accomplishments in the last decade, and that's the issuance of a, uh, the first national strategy on information sharing, which the President signed and delivered to Congress uh, about a year ago, which actually defines a a responsibility and, and supports laws that were passed to require the administration to do this uh, to have the federal intelligence community share information with state and local law enforcement, but also to build within the federal agency a system of sharing that kills the, uh, the, the stovepipe system notion that has guided or most federal agencies since they began using computers. Uh, and in that document and, and in the, the practices of the organization that wrote that document, the, there was discussed this idea of a national information exchange model so we could agree on the terms. This is a major, major breakthrough that uh, because state and local agencies throughout the justice system and federal agencies collaborated on building this model, we now have a, a way to agree what the term case means, what the term offense means, what how, how do we describe a vehicle? Is it a Ford or a Chevy or a vehicle or a car or a truck? We've, we've come up with a vocabulary that allows us to uh, computerize the information exchanges instead of passing paper around. That's just an enormous breakthrough. And about 39 states have now adopted NEEM and both the Department of Homeland Security and Department of Justice have dictated that there will be no new systems that they've built unless they're conformant with NEAM. And the special conditions on the grants that are being issued starting last year require the use of NEAM. So for the first time, we now have a vocabulary to exchange information about. That's just an enormous step forward. Couple that with the... The universal open standard that, that XML brings to the table, and our, uh, we've we've now got the tools to to do this much better. 
And the, the other thing that's happened is, in support of all this, and really in association with, with all this technology, there's a whole new architectural framework that's come out of this that is called service-oriented architecture, and I'm not going to get technical about it, but the whole idea is to break programs down into little chunks and have them, those little chunks talk to each other rather than having huge, big, monolithic computer programs that break all the time. So the technology has improved. The technology is here to do this now. We've solved the vocabulary problem. Now it's a matter of the money and the will and the and building the trust between agencies that allows for a much better information sharing capacity in this country, and we're on the path to do that. Sorry for that long-winded answer, Deborah. Oh, no, I want long-winded answers. You have a, <laughs> a 45-minute show, and I'm sure we can fill it, but I believe that some of many of our listeners will not know some of the things that, that you say in this show, and I think that's part of the reason you're here, is that um, the most of my audience will be people working in the crime and intelligence analysis field, and I know I went I was part of a focus group at your agency where you brought together some crime and intelligence analysts to to, to look at some modules. Um, I'm not exactly sure. This was a few years ago what the outcome was of that, but where we were trying to agree on what was important um, in information systems for analysts. And one of the things I do remember is that analysts should have access to everything, and, and I don't think many Many people who um, work in, as analysts struggle with their IT departments or their leadership or other agencies as to why they need access to pretty much all the information to, to do a good job as an analyst. So could you talk a little bit, maybe you don't agree with that, but I'm, I'm thinking that's, that's my thought, but what, why do analysts need information? Because not everyone really understands this, and also some of their leaders might listen to this show or some some law enforcement leaders will be listening to the show and say, oh, I didn't realize that, um, first of all, I need to improve my information systems and I also need um, to, to give access to, to, to information to my analysts. Yes, and I, I hope they are listening because it's, it's a very important thing. As, as we discovered in that focus group, and uh, it was uh, not a shock to me, but I was disturbed by the extent of it, because <clears throat> we had a, a group of experienced analysts, including yourself, coming from live police uh, crime analysis units and, and representing the International Association of Crime Analysts that um, told us the, the horror stories, really, of not having access to all the information or having to do so much manual effort to, to pull it together that you couldn't even get any results done. Uh, and and that's that's the the problem is that still in this country there are a lot of police records management systems that were built many years ago that are still running that are just their own little stovepipe systems. One agency might have a, a a crime reporting system they built in order to generate uniform crime reports years ago, but it's not tied to the to the uh, citation system or the accident system or the uh, suspected homicide file that the de homicide detectives keep. So <clears throat> what what uh, is increasingly uh, 
true for police executives in this country and in the world for that matter, is that decisions need to be made based on data and information and they need to be, uh, and, and the analyst needs to have access to every single piece of information that needs to be correlated in order to generate actionable products that the rest of the police department can do something about. I'll just tell you one little story about this because <clears throat> some years ago I was a consultant in the San Jose Police Department and they had a crime analyst who was probably one of the best known and best and most capable crime analysts in the country and she was highly revered and respected by everyone in the department. And uh, uh and I had known her for some time and uh thought very highly of her. And as I went around to interview the, the watch commanders uh, to help them come up with their requirements for a new records management system, the one thing I heard repeatedly is that, wow, our crime analyst is so good. She gets all this stuff for us. But, you know, the only problem is it takes her six weeks. And by the time she tells me there's a gang operating on the west side of San Jose, and I put people out there, that gang's moved to the east side. Isn't there some way we can get this faster and better? And Well, you know, the problem is that at that time they were using a very sophisticated, complicated, mainframe-based statistical package to analyze the data. And it took six to eight weeks to get all the data entered and run and batch programs run and uh, it's very difficult to get anything out and they suffered from the same problem as a lot of particularly larger police departments they had a one little computer running uh, a list of bad people and another one running the you know list of incidents and they couldn't tie them together so how can an analyst help shape both strategic and tactical decision-making of the police department if they can't get access to all the data. And we we heard that from the analysts in that focus group, and uh, I think one of the outcomes, and just so you do know what happened to it, is that that work ended up as a chapter in a a new set of functional standards that are published on the, uh, the web by the... Uh, Law Enforcement Information Technology Standards Council, which is an organization composed of uh, International Association of Chiefs of Police, National Sheriff's Association, Police Executive Research Forum, and the uh, and, and Noble, the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, and uh, the LEETS website, which is L E I S T C dot org, is uh, now has these these functional specifications for how to build a new police records management system and includes that chapter on analysis that came out of your focus group. So now for the first time we have national functional standards that when the police department wants to go procure a new records management system, they can look at these standards and decide which of them apply to their own needs and then write an RFP that's much more intelligent, much more uh, uh, capable of serving the crime analysis or the intelligence analysis function. And uh, we've never had that before. And a lot of agencies now have looked at those, that document and said, well, this makes a lot of sense. And once they start 
doing writing RFPs around that document, what's going to happen is that the industry, the companies who make these systems are going to say, well, yeah, that makes sense. Let's do it that way. And now we'll have raised the bar radically in terms of providing an integrated whole to these records management systems instead of a bunch of separate little functional uh, stovepipe systems. And that's really what we have to do. And it's not just uh, just because uh, you know people in industry need to, to make money by selling more systems. It's that we've got to get rid of these stovepipe approaches to life and, and find a way to provide that data. The, there's a whole big movement, as you know, Deborah, in this country towards this concept of intelligence-led policing. But, you know, that's kind of a, a fancy uh, new phrase for what used to be called data-driven policing. But the, the whole concept that police executives are much more excited about these days is making decisions both strategically and tactically on real data and analysis of that data not on anecdotal or you know gut decisions that may or may not have any basis in fact <clears throat> and that's where that's where law enforcement has to go and that's why the the more progressive law enforcement executives in this country recognize the importance of analysis of both in terms of giving the the crime analyst or the intelligence analyst the right tools to work with but also making sure that the data is at at their disposal. Right, and we have also obviously the problem or the challenge of the structure of our policing in the United States when you have so many agencies, I mean definitely over 16,000 law enforcement agencies, and one of the reasons the, the systems have the information technologies has presented such a challenge is you have people buying information systems um, records management systems without the experience to know what they're choosing and whether it's what they really need. I mean, it would be like me who doesn't really know. I don't know much about cars. I have to trust the car dealer, you know. Um, so you have all the people buying all these systems, and when, without standards, it's sort of a hit and miss thing in how efficient it would really work for the purpose of of the agency, which is, of course, to um, to as you said use information they gather to make good decisions to, to improve public safety. Um, on that note, you were talking about intelligence-led policing, which is something um, I'm interested in, obviously, because I, um, I don't write just crime analysis on my blog or, or intelligence analysis. I say crime and intelligence analysis in policing because um, in our country, it is more sep much more a separated function probably do also to the, to the layers of policing we have where you would have um, local level policing doesn't generally unless it's a big city will use it will um, focus on crime analysis on crime incidents and not so much on um, organized crime groups that cover lots of jurisdictions because they're only focused on their city or town or whatever but when you get to the um, state and federal agencies you see more intelligence analysts are working on finding the criminal organizations and groups. But it's my thought, um, especially after 9-11, that a lot of the information at the local level um, is in the hands of the local analysts, the eyes, who are the eyes and ears of the 
analytical community in our country, but there's no good way to share all this information and enhance the mission that we're going to analyze crime and intelligence information together to see what it means. Not only what does this incident mean in my city, but is it related to some kind of organized crime or terrorist activity? Um, and I was wondering what your opinion was on, on crime analysis and intelligence analysis as separate and as something that works together. Well, I, I, in, in that focus group that you participated in, we spent a lot of time talking about the fact that we really need to think about a police analyst, not just crime analyst or intelligence analyst, that the analytical skills needed to look at data and draw out uh, information that can be actionable are the same. So, you know, why are we separating these two things? <clears throat> and I think the... One of the, you're right about the, the structure and the fragmentation of this and the fact that smaller agencies can't afford either a crime analyst or an intelligence analyst, and so they don't have them, and larger agencies do and, and states do. Uh, but, you know, there's, <clears throat> I'm, I'm not willing to, to buy into the notion that these things shouldn't be done even at the smaller agencies maybe the one-man departments, but uh, somebody needs to be looking at the data and looking at what's happening in those jurisdictions. There's a, there's a great growing recognition at the federal level now that you know we have 700,000 sworn officers out there in the field every day, and they are the best eyes and ears for detecting suspicious activity in, in advance of something happening. Uh, we have investigators that are investigating local crime activity in those cities large enough to have a detective force uh, in their eyes and ears, and they understand what's going on at the local level. And the federal government has really responded to that uh, need and, and that possibility of using local law enforcement more effectively. Of course, one of the things that, that they've done is create the idea of the fusion centers where you know, for for those who don't know what a fusion center is, it's a place really where multiple agencies can come together and have access to multiple sources of data, federal, state, and local, and try to, to correlate information across those systems or fuse the information <clears throat> to draw conclusions about the possibility of, of uh, either a criminal act or a terrorist act happening and to to provide that information to those who can take action on it in a timely way. And, and I think uh, fusion centers are kind of a driver for changing how even local law enforcement uh, behaves. <clears throat> in my early days in this field, <clears throat> local law enforcement agencies who had intelligence units were, were, were not really doing what we would call intelligence analysis. They were collecting newspapers about organized crime and putting them in file cabinets and, you know, wanting to know who Frank Sinatra was having dinner with. And, <laughs> you know, we we weren't very sophisticated in those days. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> people are now looking at how the military gathers intelligence and saying what what kinds of skills and tools and techniques that the military has used over the years should be transferable to state and local law enforcement. And 
it's a whole different way of looking at intelligence. The need for example, and you can probably relate to this. Uh, you know, how many police executives come up with a uh, an intelligence requirement to, and give that to their analyst? You know, most of the time the police chief lets the analyst go fiddle with data, and if they come up with something, great. But I've rarely seen uh, local police executives say, here are the 10 things I want you to find for me, and, and here are the products I want you to create for me. Uh, <clears throat> unlike the military, which <clears throat> has a, an intelligence requirement with every mission. <clears throat> right, there's so, no planning. The planning stage in the national security model of and military models of the intelligence cycle are pretty much absent at the local yeah. level. The planning and direction, we're not directed. We're, mm. We just have to figure it out <laughs> on our own. Right, exactly. And that, of course, then we are those that analyst that you were talking about before that comes up with things that are late because we're just trying to do something because we don't mm. have the tools or the direction or the time, the timely data um, to, to serve the, the decision maker appropriately even though we have the skills. So yeah, but it's, it's kind of their own fault, you know, and, and, and I'm not trying to be negative about it, but if you don't ask for what you need as an executive, whose fault is it if it doesn't get done? <clears throat> uh, I, I remember years ago <clears throat> I put in a computer system for a small town in Maryland, and we installed it successfully, and it was up and running, and I went back a month later to visit with the chief and see how he was getting along with his new computer system. And he was really happy to see me. He said, I'm just really great. I'll be really thrilled when, when you get around to installing this thing. And I, I said, well, chief, it's been up and running for a month. And he said, well, how come I haven't seen any reports out of it? And I said, have you asked for them? Well, no. <laughs> you know, if if you don't ask your people to give you information to help you make decisions, you know what? They probably won't. And why should well, they? Right. And I, and that also, um, maybe you can explain to the listeners who might benefit from this. Um, I've also had people, um, leaders say, well, we just want, like, you just come in and put some system in this crime analysis system, like a whole system that will work. And, you know, so you could just put anybody there and it and you, they could be the analysts, but it doesn't work that way. I, I, although your focus has been on creating more um, accessible information through improving information technology, you still need people to do it. And it isn't a push-button thing where you just get a report. You, it involves a lot of critical thinking. Sometimes not a lot. Sometimes it is pushing a button. But often it's putting together a lot of disparate da data. Um, as you were saying, if you're working for the justice system, not just a the police agency, you're thinking about the courts, you're thinking, we think parole, probation has tons of information. And if we were looking at the military model, we're also looking at open source information, geography, other kinds of records that we can all, as an analyst, bring together to create that actionable product that will help the decision maker. Um, so it isn't like, even though someone can get the, the the right RFP and get the right information system, you still need the decision maker to know what they want and the analyst to know how to find it. So um, can you speak a little bit more, a little bit on that, 
Like it's not like you can just buy a climate analysis package and then it works. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. There's no, there is no such magic button to push to <laughs> to bring together all the data because the real value of the analyst is in aggregating information across multiple systems and environments. You know, and you'll never have the ability to integrate everything that needs to be brought to bear for a particular uh, issue. I, th- I think the two critical things that are really most important in, in, in improving this situation is one is the is the clear connection between the analytical function and the strategic plans of the agency. That is to say, the chief executive has to define his or her needs for information or intelligence and what has to be, what it should be based on as well as, uh, you know, what, what form it should take and then hold the crime analysis unit accountable for producing it. The second critical part of this is is exactly what you talked about. It's critical thinking skills on the part of the analyst. <clears throat> We've never really... Uh, figured out exactly what training really needs to be done with the exception of the work that that you guys did in the International Association of Crime Analysts to to come up with a basic training course. But in most cases in law enforcement, the criteria for hiring a crime analyst aren't really uh, based on evaluating that person's critical thinking abilities. They're based on, you know... I remember in San Jose at one point years ago, the the crime analyst was the guy who banged up his leg on a motorcycle, and that's how he became the crime analyst. That was before the lady I talked about. But you know that that kind of style has got to end. We've got to be training analysts in critical thinking, hiring them because of their ability to do so, and and matching them up with the real. Uh, operational and strategic needs of the department. Uh, that's as important as the technology, more important than the technology. There's no question about that. Now, having said that, there are some some really great uh, new things that have happened in, in recent years. Uh, there's been a lot of progress in the whole area of what people tend to call predictive analytics, of being able to to, to, to do that magic button of predicting when and where our crimes going to occur. That's been kind of a holy grail of the technology guys for many, many years. I remember trying to do something about that back in the 70s in, in my company and uh, never been very successful. But recently, some of the more sophisticated companies that, that are really expert in, in statistics and, and building a predictive models I've had a fair amount of success. There was a story recently about the Richmond PD and their uh, computer system, which has successfully predicted quite a large number of individual uh, criminal events. But um, you know, but that's one system. You can't. You can't. It's not the whole job of the crime analyst is to figure out where the next crime is going to occur. Uh, it's correlating patterns. It's correlating suspects with crimes that that 
is the great value of the crime analyst or the intelligence analyst, putting data together and making more of it than the individual data tells you. So a lot of a lot of times also there there no matter how much we rely on the computer system, there's there's an intuitive side to this analysis function that to to decide which path you're going to go down to which data you're going to bring together and to make more of it than on its surface it is by itself. It's that, uh, I hate to use the overused word of synergism, but it's sort of a data synergism, being able to to make the sum greater, the whole greater than the sum of the parts. Uh, that's what the really great crime analysts and intelligence analysts do for their chiefs is, is, is figure out something that's not intuitively obvious. If it's intuitively obvious, you don't need an analyst. Right. Everybody knows that's sort of like the pin maps when officers say, well, we already know all the crime is here, so what does it mean? If you bring more information into it, and you could say, well, this well, this has been here 10 years. Why is this the same hot spot? <laughs> you know, if you, and more about the gangs or the, the people yeah, right. here, or all the information you could about this location rather than here's your, look at this, this is your problem. You have crime right here, but there's so much more you could tell about this, just even a plain pin map. Um, I, I have been an advisor to a text analytics um, software company. I was wondering if you, what your opinion was on the future of the use of text analytics in law enforcement, because I see some great potential. We can, often, as you, we, we've, analysts have just counted incidents or just said, you know, put maps together and counted things and maybe, maybe became a little bit more sophisticated than that, but text analytics opens the door to analyze narratives and information we haven't been able to to analyze so thoroughly. Um, what Do you have any opinion about text analytics? Oh, yes. I have stronger opinions about it, I guess. I think it's a has tremendous potential. Uh, I think it, uh, I, I talk about it as unstructured data versus structured data. Right. And the, I don't think that that you can really get the power you need unless you figure out a way to to analyze both structured and unstructured data. Uh, just the text analytics by itself uh, isn't going to give you what you need in the end because there's so many different ways to phrase things. And even with, I've, I've seen some very sophisticated systems and they can help and sometimes they'll do well, but, you know, People have been struggling with this also for decades. I remember years ago, there was L.A. County was trying to build a system. They spent like $15 million with some really big uh, technology firm trying to uh, do text analytics, basically. And um, they were their story was they were had a, a bedsheet burglar who always uh, stole a took a bed sheet and wrapped whatever it was he took and took that with him. And the problem was that there was so many infinite ways of describing that that MO that and there was no disciplined data collection that allowed you to even start the search on it. And even with some of the best uh, predictive uh, analytics by itself, I think there's got to be some match between structured and unstructured data for you to really get where you need to go. And, and that's and there's a lot of progress in, in that regard. There's a number of companies that are 
uh, offering that kind of capability today, which I'm very excited about. There's another, uh, the, the other thing, of course, is, is standardizing the way that information is is uh, captured and presented to make it easier to apply those those kinds of things that do both structured and unstructured data. Uh, one new thing that's going on right now that I think a lot of people aren't, aren't aware of yet is we've been working uh, to build this this new uh, national system of suspicious activity reports, which is really, uh, and the whole idea is to have a, a, a spec for a suspicious activity report that uses NEAM as a, as a way to standardize the content and then introduce the data capture in law enforcement that has that both the structured and unstructured data uh, it's, it's kind of like a sophisticated field contact report that many agencies have done forever and ever, uh, but doing it in a way that makes it uh, standardized across the country so pol local police can can do their analysis first on that to the extent of their awareness and then forward it to the fusion center and then ultimately to the federal agencies if it's relevant. Uh, and that there's a, a trial going on right now in 12 jurisdictions throughout the country that the IGES Institute is managing to test this out and to create a, a national network of fusion center exchanges. Um, and this project is supported by the Bureau of Justice Assistance, the Department of Homeland Security, and the program manager for the information sharing environment. And so it's got a lot of attention. There's a National Fusion Center conference going on next week where there will be a lot of talk about spreading it out to the whole country. And uh, I think that that whole idea of SAR uh, standardization and reporting is going to give analysts at all levels uh, a, a lot more reliable information to, to analyze and in a way that computers can be used to do it. Uh, that's Maybe you could just explain real briefly what the difference between structured and unstructured data for our listeners, because I'm, I know, but um, the structured data is, like say if you it's a male or a female, that's all it could be. Um, it's it's a number, um, but a narrative, when a police officer takes a, like you said, a suspicious, suspicious activity report, they'll be writing their description, but there should be fields where they could put a, an answer that would be... Um, Describe it for me. Yes, a structured, a structured, the structured data is that you predefine the options or the um, entry so that the officer can choose between a number of alternatives, like the example you used, M or F, or male or female. There's an unknown. There are only those are the three genders that you can choose from. You can't write in X for some other gender. Uh, the computer, yeah. computer in a structured data collection edits the entry so that it, those are the only allowable entries. And, and colors, for example, we've we've had structured uh, lists of colors that the FBI has issued for many, many years, for example, for colors of automobiles, vehicles. So blue is B-L-U, and it's not B-L-U-E, and it's not, you know, some other representation. And there's a limited number of those colors. You have to pick from this list of 
presented to you if it's a computerized entry. Or on a form, there's you know a checkbox that says I want to I'm going to pick one of these ten entries, and that makes it structured and disciplined so that then it's possible, far more possible to search on it when you're looking for comparable offenses. Now we, we did a lot of we did a lot of standardization of these terms in the new FBI's new National Data Exchange Program, which is now operational. It's also a major step forward. There's uh, millions and millions of incident reports now available through uh, NCIC at at the FBI's computer headquarters in Clarksburg, Virginia. All the federal law enforcement agencies have put their incident reports into this national repository, and states are doing it very, very fast. Uh, so, And that gives analysts at a local level the ability to look at other incidents in areas surrounding their community or you know, other incidents anywhere in the country that may have a similar MO or uh, you know, allows them to search MOs of incidents. And all of that data is, is uh, heavily structured so that it's easy, easily searched, but they're also looking at the ability to search the unstructured data, uh, the, the text that you're talking about, the narrative in a report, and, and they're going to have that capability to do both. So that's going to be an enormous capability for the analyst in either crime or intelligence. Right. And um, I mean, and a whole other show would be about how what kinds of information we need collected, the improvement in collection, which we also don't direct in law, law enforcement for the decision maker so much, except for an investigation. You know, you're not well, saying the military, um, there's, there are collectors of information in law enforcement. Yes. The analyst relies on the officers collecting things and they don't right. report many things. But um, I don't, you know, I've the 45 minutes is winding up. I don't know if you want to talk longer or if you would like to, in the future, come back for another show because I know your time is valuable. Um, I think that we brought up points that some of our listeners haven't thought of at all, I, I would imagine. And I, I think your agency, um, while it's visible to many organizations, isn't so much so visible to the, to the analysts. I know of. So I thank you. It's been really great to have you on the show. Do you have any closing remarks you might want to make before um, we end no, the show? No, if, uh, if anybody listening is wants more information on any things we've talked about, uh, I invite you to visit uh, our website, ijis.org, uh, ijis.org, and uh, my contact information is there. Feel free to call or write. And, uh, we're we're here to provide help and assistance to state and local law enforcement and criminal justice agencies. So uh, I'm very open to anybody's questions or interest in further information. Uh, thank you, Deborah, for having me, and I'll be happy to come back and talk more about those other topics in some yeah. future show. Well, what I would what I'm going to do is post on my blog, Analyst Corner. Um, analystcorner.blogspot.com. I'm going to post the, the resource you you um, you told me about and and the link to your to your website. Um, and so I'd like to thank you listeners for joining us on Analyst Corner. Stay tuned for more expert guests and best practices in crime and intelligence analysis and policing. Again, thank you, Paul. I really appreciate your time and um, you stay safe out there. Okay. <laughs> okay. Bye bye. Keep on doing your good work. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye.